We are back. Uh, we are ready. Cyril of Jerusalem is our next point of focus. Mm. Uh, we've got the, the good doctor of patristics, Nick Cleveley, in the house. And um, where did you get your doctorate from, Nick? Uh, the <laughs> Diploma Mills Arrest? Patristic Diploma Mills Arrest? Yeah, something like that. Something Toys like R Us, somewhere there. Yeah. <laughs> something like that. Uh, yeah, me too. Me too. I get, I get mine from um, the Holy University of, of Jerusalem. Um, distance, of course. So there's that. But uh, we, uh, we have something that goes beyond our own um, ability to, or our own uh, need to be credible. This is something that has entrenched itself in, into church history and uh, something that stands on its own. All we aim to do in this uh, episode is to do what we do every um, episode dealing with, with uh, these famous texts, and that's just to read it and to just kind of gump our way through it, I think is the best way to put it. <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, and, you know, wh what is the point of this? Well, it's just kind of fun, and uh, it's just it's a nerdy thing, but it's an awesome thing. And, uh, yeah, we just... You know, join us in the conversation. What I've got is um, uh, this book written by uh, Tony Lane. It's actually compiled by him with a brief little introduction about these guys. Uh, it's, a, it's the Christian Classics Collection, uh, the Lane Christ Christian Classics Collection. But you can just as easily go ahead and um, look at all these little things we're looking at on um, the Ancient Nicene Fathers. You get Kindle editions. You get free, free versions. Uh, you can just probably Google it and get um, the individual hits. Um, and so, you know, why not just go ahead, read it with us, um, you know, see what we're on about, uh, stop the, stop the video, stop the, the podcast, whatever you're listening to and, um, go ahead and read some and then come back and join us. Think about it with us. It's just a way to keep moving in this stuff. And, um, and we honestly, we have done no prep for this. We just kind of, uh, what we are doing though, maybe just not to short sell this too much. And I think probably this is of interest for anyone, um, who is interested in kind of what we talk about usually on this podcast anyway. Uh, and what I'm thinking there is, you know, basically a Kleinian perspective, uh, a Reformed Baptist perspective. You know, it brings a kind of unique mix in that a lot of Kleinians are not Reformed Baptists, a lot of Reformed Baptists aren't Kleinians. So there is some sort of niche there. And, um, and you know, in saying that, it's not just that we're focused on baptism and whatever, you know, the, the individual thing is, but we're focused on the, the big sort of framework that that provides through which to understand so much of theology. I mean, really, we might even say all of theology between the two kingdom lens, between the covenantal lens, between the baptism thing. I mean, you honestly have got most of it covered. And, um, and so what we are doing, just because we can't help but do this, is uh, we want to read through some texts that are anything but Baptist and Kleinian. <laughs> and, yeah. uh, and it's just a helpful thing, a healthy thing to go ahead and relate that then to the way we would approach the subject. So uh, in, in this particular instance, you've got Cyril of Jerusalem and um, the catechetical lectures on baptism. And, um, you know, that's, that's, that's in our alley in that sense. Um, and uh, there's no doubt something to say about it. So, uh, you know, not that I'm, you know, no one, I don't want to trumpet up too much and make it too serious, but at the same time, you know, hopefully that is something we can bring to the table. And, um, and uh, well, one thing I like about it is that you know, sometimes Kleinians and Reformed Baptists are always only ever talking about their thing. And, um, and that gets a little bit irritating for me sometimes. And I think, I think it's gotta, be, you gotta master your, your framework, but you gotta move on and, and see how, 
how everything fits into it. And so hopefully we're doing a little bit of that in, in this series. Um, so yeah. I realize not everyone's going to be into Cyril of Jerusalem, <clears throat> but if you look at it at an, as an exercise in that light, uh, hopefully that, that helps just put this into context. Um, all right, so Nick, with that in mind, uh, what do we know about this guy, Cyril of Jerusalem? Um, well, as I was doing a bit of research on him, he reminded me of Athanasius. Mm-hmm. So he had the same sort of journey. He became the Bishop of Jerusalem, and whenever there was an Arian in power, he got booted and exiled, mm-hmm. and then he came back, and then he got, I think he got exiled about three times. Right. right. Um, and so he was like another Ash- a- a- Athanasius. Yep. Yep. So that was very interesting. Yep. Totally. Um, and then, yeah, we're looking at his catechetical instruction, and he's he's credited as being a very warm and pastoral sort of guy. Mm-hmm. And so this is the this is this is deemed to be very helpful stuff. It's right after Constantine is coming to power. So this is sort of the golden age of the Constantinian era. Okay. So yeah, just very interesting from that point of view. Totally. I've got a usually they aren't this short, but this one's just got quite succinct and uh, it might actually be worth me just quickly reading this through to give a little bit of an introduction. Because not a lot of known yeah. not not a lot is known about Cyril, and yet he has got this little uh, this little moment in the sun. And uh, so uh, this is a good little synopsis of what, what we know about him. Uh, he died in 386. Um, and as you said, he opposed Arianism. Cyril is famous for one particular work, a series of 24 catechetical lectures. These were given probably in 350 at the Church of Holy Sepulchre, Church of the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem uh, to those preparing for baptism. As the full title to the first lecture puts it, it is an introductory lecture to those who have come forward for baptism, delivered extempore at Jerusalem to those about to be enlightened, that is, baptized. Uh, the lectures were copied out by one of the years. They fall into two groups. The first 19 were given during Lent as the candidates prepared for their baptism on Easter Day. After an initial uh, proto-catechesis, or sorry, pro-catechesis or prologue, there are five preliminary lectures on repentance, faith, and baptism together with a summary account of Christian doctrine. These are followed by 13 lectures expounding on the local creed of the Jerusalem church, which um, was very similar to the Nicene, so that kind of yeah. is uh, hopefully helpful just to get a bearing there. Uh, the second group of the five lectures known as the mystagogical lectures, or the mystagogic uh, yeah, mystagogic lectures were delivered in the newly uh, to the newly baptized and cover baptism, confirmation, communion. Uh, for a while, it was held these blah, 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 yakety, smackety, and then this last little thing. Uh, these lectures are of great value. They give a unique insight into the instruction given to those preparing for baptism in the middle of the 4th century, what they were required to believe, and how they were to be expected to live after they were baptized. Uh, they also describe in detail the practice of and belief about the sacraments at the time. So in, in just following on from what you were saying a second ago, I mean, that in that sense is very, very, very interesting to see what exactly was the, yeah. what was the dig now as the golden age sets in and uh, Christendom is in play. Um, and so we're on lecture 20, if you are checking with us. How did you find it, Nick? Did you get lecture uh, 20? I mean, uh, maybe just to give a little context, uh, lecture one I thought was very interesting. So yeah. it's the whole thing of they're looking at the mysteries and the mystery of baptism. And part of the uh, baptismal rite in lecture one is you have to denounce Satan. Mm. <clears throat> and so you face the West mm. and you denounce Satan. You denounce his pomp. And that means <clears throat> that you don't go to theater to watch effeminate men dancing. Mm-hmm. And uh, <laughs> it's going to ruin everything. 
Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, so he's obviously against ballet and that sort of thing. Uh-huh. And uh, you denounce his works. And so that includes, you know, fortune telling, palm reading, and all those sorts of things. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so, I, I mean, I, I appreciated the way he was very systematic. Right. But right. Um, if, if I have to apply the regular principle to what he's saying, you know, there's a heap of stuff that's been added. Dude. Yeah, and we, and we certainly see that in lecture two as well, and um, yeah. and so this is the mid Mister Gadget lecture two, um, and so did you find it on the internet? Where are you reading from? From your anti? I'm reading files? it from the complete anti Nicene and Nicene and post Nicene Church Fathers collection, and it's structured lecture twenty, lecture two. How does that work for you? Yeah, so lecture twenty on the mysteries, number two of baptism, okay. and what he does in this section in all of his uh, catechetical instructions is he begins with a verse. Mm-hmm. And then from that verse, he launches into his topic. So it starts cool. with Romans 6, verse 3 to 14 as his verse. For sure. All right. Well, with no further ado, let's get into it. Sweet. You want to kick us off first? All right. Well, l- let me read uh, the scripture intro and then the first paragraph. Right. So it, it begins, Romans 6, 3 to 14. Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death, etc.? For ye are not under the law, but under grace. Thus endeth this biblical part of what's coming. (laughs) (laughs) It's about all, but that's the only Bible you're going to get today. (laughs) All right, go. Number one these daily introductions into the mysteries and new instructions, which are the announcements of new truths, are profitable to us, and most of all to you who have been renewed from an old state to a new. Therefore, I shall necessarily lay before you the sequel of yesterday's lecture, that ye may learn of what those things which were done by you in the inner chamber were symbolical. So maybe just a, a quick. Uh, yeah, what's going he's, on? With he's the obviously inner just chamber. doing an introduction here. Yeah, and uh, he talks about the inner chamber, mm. and so in the last lecture, he references baptism being the holy of holies. Mm-hmm. You know, in terms of that deep engagement with God. Mm-hmm. So that 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 reference to the inner chambers is just carrying over some of that language as Got he it. moves forward. All right. Yeah. Cool. Number so two. When he says you. when he says I will teach you what was symbolized by the things you did in the inner t- chamber, what does he mean there? Um. So it's baptism. So he's yeah. lecturing on baptism. But is he yeah. thinking of baptism as a symbol then of what's? Yes, is, he definitely is, uses symbolic language, but it's a symbol. That has this deep spiritual reality behind it. Yeah. So, so far, so good, right? Yeah. So, I mean, the symbolical language is it's universal all the way through. Yeah. And the, a very deep mystery of divinization and all right. sorts of other stuff is also right. going on all so the way. Sim- symbolism plus, right. Got it. Yeah. And so, it's just a ma- matter of trying to figure out how much plus. Yeah. Yeah. He's, he's not a fundamentalist Baptist. He's not, a, <laughs> he's, he's not a Zwinglian. There's nothing Zwinglian about the use of the term here. I know. I just got quite excited when I saw symbolize. I was like, oh, <laughs> my goodness. Um, all right. Good. So, on to, oh, so you haven't actually, have you read the first? Yeah, you yep, did. that's it. Yeah, yeah, that's that number it. one. It's just an intro. So, you take number two. All right. Number two. I got a, I got a crazy one. All right. Uh, here we go. As soon as you entered, you took off your clothes, symbolizing. Yeah taking off the old man with his deeds naked having stripped you were naked thus imitating christ who was stripped naked on the cross and by his nakedness disarmed the principalities and powers triumphing over them on the tree for since the enemy forces made their lair in your members you may no longer wear that old garment i'm not referring to this visible garment but to the old man which was corrupted by its deceitful lusts 
May the soul which has once taken him off never again put him on. But say, with the bride of Christ in the Song of Solomon, I have taken off my robe, how shall I put it on? How marvelous! You were naked in the sight of all and were not ashamed, like the first Adam who was naked <laughs> who was naked in the garden and not ashamed, right? So I, I just wanna I, I wanna know what just happened there. That's what I wanna know. Yeah, that's that's part of the uh, early practice of baptism. You got naked. So how did that work exactly? Wait, surely it was so, just I mean, priests around. I, 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 as I was doing research on deaconesses at some yeah. point in the past, um, there were women deacon to baptize women. Right. Male deacons to baptize males. So I don't think this is in front of the whole congregation, at least not by the reading I've done. Maybe yeah. this is something new and there were churches that practiced that'd know, be streaking. Sh- Totally. I mean, that would be crazy. It almost borderline immorality at that point. And, you know, there'd be, it would be, yeah. well, it would be immorality at some level. I think it would lead yeah. to crazy stuff, but I'm almost positive they, they kept agenda specific. Yeah. The next chapter is even worse, man. But, uh, yeah, that's true. Although, you know, good old demon deliverance can't, can't fault that, you know, after our last, I refer you back to our back, last. Yeah. Podcast. And then again, I mean, he uses Song of Songs. Yeah. yeah, he uses Song of Songs and he speaks about the spouse of Christ. But you know, the particular verse that he uses is actually a negative thing, where the bridegroom's knocking on the door and she's saying, "Like, well, why yeah. should I get up? Why must I yeah. put my garments yeah. on?" Yeah. And he's just completely quoting it out of context. Out of context, yeah, exactly. I've just actually totally preached, out of context. Preached on that two weeks ago. And, um, <laughs> there you go. Yeah, it's just. Um, well, I mean, they all did it though, right? Song of Solomon was like, I mean, you were allegorizing anyway, but when it came to Song yeah. of Solomon, it was just like allegory upon allegory. And uh, if yeah. ever context just really didn't pay any, um, uh, you didn't pay any care to it. That was the book. Um, so there we go. You got naked. You got baptized. Now, one thing just before we move on is that I like where he goes with all of it, though. You know, like, I, I mean, it's all true. The theology of clothing, you know, the garment theology, the the, the motif. Yeah, he right takes through. it back to the garden. Yeah, yeah. He takes it back to the garden. He works it all the way through to the new garment in Christ. Um, it, it, you know, the nakedness on the tree. I mean, I think all of that is absolutely 100% onto it and very, very good. It's just that, uh, you know, requiring that in baptism is to go beyond yeah. the scripture. And I think that's basically, you put your, your finger on it a second ago in that really what we're talking about here is, is the regular principle or sola scriptura or, you know, yeah. we're just moving a little bit beyond. I mean, as, as long as it's in the Bible, it's good. As soon as we come up with yeah. our own thing, it just gets weird. That's the bottom line. Yeah, there's another there's another thing that he does, and he does this quite consistently out of all that I've read in his catechetical uh, instructions, is that he, anytime the word bread appears in the scriptures, he brings it up in the lecture. And okay. sometimes it's relevant and sometimes it's not. Right. Like he did it with garment in Song of Solomon's. Okay. So like you can bring up Adam and the lack of garments, and that's yeah. spot on. But if mm. you bring up the word garments in Song of Solomon's, right. oh, missed it on that one. Yeah. Although, you know, I mean, so if I was reading Song of Solomon, and as I was, I mean, I, I would not be thinking about that garment motif. You know, it's, yes. it's it's correct that he's bringing it up in some sense. But yeah, I mean, I think you're just falling prey at some level to that fourfold allegorization thing that started to kick in. And, um, and so they just aren't as concerned as they should have been with context. And that was going to always just be that thing yeah. that they kept it. So sometimes you know, they're going to get it. Sometimes they're not. Sometimes exactly. they're on the money. Sometimes they're missing it. So a great, a uh, great yeah. illustration of that is, I don't know if you know what this is, the whole, uh, can you see uh, that? It's out of focus. All right, it's the St. George and the dragon thing. Okay. And it's the little prayer to the saint in Latin, in case you wanted to do that. But, uh, the, uh, the whole thing 
is uh, why I like this ring so much and why I like that whole thing is he was a martyr, right? Um, suffered tremendously, died, you know, martyred, blah, blah, blah. And then this whole mythical thing developed um, that, you know, he, he, you know, almost the fairy tale, the, the, the precedent to all fairy tales. There was this guy named George. He was a knight. He saved the princess. He slayed the dragon, the whole deal. And then they, you know, just got super interested in the way that that all worked out. And that was a, a an intentional mythologizing of the two Adam concept, which I found amazing. Um, that basically they understood <laughs> that Satan should have killed the dragon, um, but didn't. And therefore the princess being the soul, so to speak, uh, was trapped. And so we need the second Adam to come and deliver us and slay the dragon. And in the process... Um, and then it got, it got all weird because, of course, uh, St. George got turned into the Euro and blah, blah, blah. But, you know, to the degree that he was simply living out that victory that Christ had won for him, fine, amen. But then the Crusaders got hold of it. And, and for me, it's just such an interesting complex of like, uh, you know, that there's some, you know, you read this stuff, even coming back to what we're reading right now, such richness, you know, in, in that in that otherwise completely apostate abysmal stuff but it starts (laughs) off well in some way and there's always something there that is it surprises me with its richness and then uh and the only way you can you can appreciate it at any level is is by uh drawing the line at soda scripture drawing the line at at, uh where the bible ends Um, amen but you know it, it just i think the reason i bring that up is just you know i think it's very very helpful to have that mindset going into this stuff, because otherwise you're just going to go, oh, that's a lot of trash, and I'm going to put it away. Yeah. Uh, but if you have that mindset and you're going, okay, what is this? T- what is this tucking into? Yes. Often you'll find incredible stuff there, and you know, and very helpful biblical theology. Um, but then again, you're drawing the line. All right. So anyway, so yeah. that's that's cool. my rant. Chapter, Chapter three. Two. Go for it. Then when ye are stripped, sorry, then when ye were stripped. You were anointed with exercised oil from the very hairs of your head to your feet and we were made partakers of the good olive tree, Jesus Christ. See, like good part, right? There. Well, you that's, were... that's the good part. Right? We are <laughs> we are made partakers of the good olive tree. Yeah. Olive but... tree, olive oil. <laughs> yeah, the connection's too strong. <laughs> Drop it. Yeah. For you were cut from the wild olive tree and grafted into the good one and were made to share the fatness of the true olive tree. The exorcised oil, therefore, was a symbol of the participation of the fatness of Christ, being a charm to drive away every trace of hostile influence. For as the breathing of the saints and the invocation of the name of God, like fiercest flames, scorch and drive out evil spirits, so also this exercised oil receives such virtue by the invocation of God and by prayer, as not only to burn and cleanse away the traces of sins, but also to chase away all the invisible powers of the evil one. So basically, replace the blood of Christ with oil and you're good. Yeah. You know, it's messed up, isn't it? It's just yeah, um, yeah. So I mean, they're they're adding a they're adding a, an element, yeah, oil, oil, which is not commanded by Christ. Exactly. And I mean, it's all out of deep symbolism and stuff. Yeah, but yeah. yeah, it's just there's no warrant in scripture. I think there's a warning there, um, and it's not only to the early church guys. It's we all want to symbolize things. We've got we've got a kind of there is something 
in us that want that likes liturgy, that likes ceremony, that likes symbolism. Yeah. You know, look look at everything from your Masonic lodge through to you know just uh, the the monarchies through the ages. I mean, we just have our ritual. It make it keeps us sane. It you know we we like to do that kind of thing. Every little club has its emblem yeah. with its symbolism. You've got to. The problem is like you just don't have liberty to go ahead and make your own symbolism in the Bible, no. you know, and it's like Ash Wednesday, you know, you, you write your sins on a piece of paper, it's lent yeah. and you take that piece of paper and you burn it. You take the ash and you put a cross on your forehead mm. to symbolize your forgiveness. Yeah. And it's just not biblical. And, and especially when God has given you that thing that should be done in the, in the sacrament, you know, to be that, visible symbol that tells you yes. that exact truth so it just gets super and you know and even if it's not like ultra old school ritual ancient church it's you know it turns into skits and dramas and whatever else we got going in modern contemporary settings uh, but yep. we just we like to do our own thing and back to regulative principle i suppose uh in that what we're saying here is listen you know, you got to keep that stuff under control because just like the idolatry tendencies, just like the visual worship tendencies, uh, we got our symbolic, you know, tendencies. And uh, the, you know, look at this; it's just what is being symbolized there is so absolutely awesome and powerful and perfect, really, and t- entirely biblical. <laughs> you know, I mean, all of these things happen when indeed we come to Christ. There are no evil spirits in us. Satan has been driven back. The power of sin has been breached. Uh, you know, we've been grafted as wild branches into Christ. I mean, this is amazing. This is this is the gospel. Yeah. And God's even given us a way to symbolize that in baptism and the Lord's Supper. But, Amen. you know, just stop them. <laughs> you know, don't make your own one. You yeah, know? I mean, the yeah. next chapter after this is on confirmation or chrism. Yeah. And that's, you know, what they do is they borrow that strong, you know, Christ spirit of, of the, the Lord was upon Jesus Christ. Mm. And so you're participating as a, as a little Christ yeah. in his own anointing. Yeah. And that's what the, the chrism was meant to symbolize. So right. it's like they're just going on trips that aren't, aren't warranted. Yeah. yeah. All right. Let's read that one. Cool. Chapter, uh, Chapter four. number four. That was my turn, right? Yep. <clears throat> uh, you were next led to the holy pool of divine baptism, just as Christ was carried from the cross to the sepulcher, which is before our eyes here in Jerusalem. And you were each asked whether you believed in the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Having made that saving confession, three times you descended into the water and ascended again. Year again, mystically signifying Christ's three-day burial. For as our Savior spent three days and three nights in the heart of the earth, so you also, when you first ascended out of the water, represented the first day of Christ in the earth, and by your descent, the night. Just as no one sees at night, but in daytime we remain in the light, so your descent, uh, in your descent you saw nothing as at night. But when you, descend, when you ascended again, it was like day. At the same moment, you were both dying and being born, that the water of salvation was both your grave and your mother. What Solomon said of others applies also to you. There is a time to be born and a time to die. But for you, the order was reversed. There was a time to die and a time to be born. Both of these took place at the same time, and your birth coincided with your death. Um, Some great poetic... understanding there well, isn't there i mean well look you know again it's this, this is like a classic case study i think in terms of what we're always on about i mean in terms of the meditation the rumination the, the cogitation even you know you might say just processing 
what's going on over here, thinking about it poetically, thinking about it meditatively, contemplatively. I got no problem with any of that. And to hear that as its own category is fine. You know, and just go, hey, have you ever thought about the way that this is kind of like we're born and yet we die? And it's kind of like the order of things are reversed. Isn't this amazing? How profound? You know, all of that's good. It gives you stuff to think about. But the minute you you start attaching it as the definitive symbolism for what's happening, like you got to be dipped three times for this reason. Uh, you know, Did you Jesus just, die three times? Well, there we go. Yeah. You know, you start in, entering <laughs> theological dangerous uh, danger yeah. ground, and um, and that's that's the that's the problem there. But again, like look at the way, uh, you know, we have so much in this uh, that that is, you know, profound and good and stuff that we would yeah. agree with. It's just so uh, the water of salvation was at once your grave and your mother. Yeah. Wow. You know, now obviously they're conflating baptism and salvation, right. which we would understand but more but correctly. We're not, but, but yeah. The concept of grave and mother is a beautiful picture. If you don't conflate those things, you get, you, I mean, that's a great way to, to process what we're saying about baptism. Um, and yeah, what else? I saw something else here. Um, anyway, bottom line is, you know, here's another thought. Um, for me, this is obviously what they're doing is, um, um, you know, if anyone who says, hey, listen, you know, the church has practiced baptism this way for since the early church. Um, therefore, we're Presbyterian, you know. Um, my pushback <laughs> on that okay. is, dude, firstly, you know, <laughs> like not only were they not practicing baptism in any way like you are, um, you know, even if it was for infants and at some level, you know, secondly they were adding so much other stuff i mean why have you not taken that on board either and yeah nakedness oil descending three times i mean did you have to close your eyes when you came out because you didn't see anything because it was supposed to be night and then <laughs> yeah, you opened I'm, your eyes when you went down again i mean what yeah i'm sure i'm sure there were some rules for that and so the bottom line is like the only thing that'll keep you sane as we're saying for this is that you're going to stick to the bible and that's going to kind of help you yeah. filter it all now the problem Shuts the is door and everything yeah it seems though that that some people are unwilling to do that for some reason when it comes to infant infant baptism and you know fair enough there's a there's a story behind that people have got a biblical argument but i'm just focusing and in, confirmation yeah and confirmation so i'm i'm focusing in on on the whole the church has always done it this way argument rather than the, yeah, I mean, I've sure. got respect for the exegetical argument. I don't want to knock it uh, at this level, but I am just saying like, I'm really not intimidated or phased by the whole early church did it this way vibe. I think what yeah. this indicates um, is that very, very quickly after the apostles and even during the time of the apostles lives, you see this encroaching kind of almost a, on the one end, the proto Gnosticism on the other end, the, um, the Judaizing, um, you know, tendencies both involving, you know, almost converging in baptism because the one wanted to sort of think about it in circumcision terms, the other wanted to think about it in terms of pagan rite. And um, and so, you know, it's almost like this thing was just getting crouched at right at the beginning. You can imagine how after only a few years without without some solid rubric of doctrine, it's just gonna it's gonna get a little bit pear-shaped. So, anyways, all to say that reading stuff like this really makes me feel good about the whole, hey, let's untangle hermeneutic, and I'm not scared to bring the Bible to bear on this stuff. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah. Agreed. And then also the uh, there's a great point beginning where you're asked, do you believe in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit? Yes, that's what I was thinking Trinitarian about. Trinitarian baptism, yeah. vocal confession at baptism. Yeah. 
Yeah. So yeah. The, the, those are great aspects. Very yeah. good. I like it. Good. Okay. Number five. Good. A strange and inconceivable thing. We did not really die. We were not really buried. We were not really crucified and raised again. But our imitation was in a figure and our salvation in reality. Christ was actually crucified and actually buried and truly rose again. And all these things he has freely bestowed upon us that we, sharing his sufferings by imitation, might gain salvation in reality. Oh, surpassing loving kindness, Christ received nails in his undefiled hands and feet and suffered anguish while on me without pain or toil by the fellowship of his suffering, he freely bestows salvation. It's my favorite so far. Yeah. I mean, as a Baptist, as a post-Reformation person who's recognizing the instrumentality of faith and not baptism mm. for justification, mm. um, you know, we would want to separate baptism from that moment of salvation, which yeah. they're conflating. Right. We, we would view it more in light of synecdoche than yeah. this conflated way. But, but, but yeah, you know it's what still I like? beautiful the way they, they understand it. Totally. And, you know, and with, and uh, again, I'll just uh, send people back. If you just scroll through the archives on this, we did do one on synecdoche. I think I labeled the podcast episode synecdoche. So you should be able to find that uh, spelled synecdoche. And uh, yeah. you've got it. Synecdoche. Synecdoche. And, um, <laughs> and, but, you know, with that rubric in place, though, and with that sort of uh, synecdoche uh, framework in place, you, <laughs> you, uh, you, um, you're able to really read this and, and appreciate what baptism is as a, as a symbol, you know, you, and, and really think about regeneration the way that you should. It's almost like you're being brought to think about regeneration in Christ, which is awesome. You know, I love, yeah. I, and there's nothing like the early church to bring that out. Right. Because they're all, as you say, just, just mixing the two up. So while they're moving in a direction that we know is ultimately going to lead to trouble, um, you, you know, again, this is not valueless. You can read this, with the correct framework in mind and be deeply yeah. edified. I think of uh, Kelvin, for example, and and uh, his reading of the Apostles' Creed. Uh, you know, there's a lot in there, well, the descended into the into hell and everything. And, and uh, you know, Kelvin's like, listen, uh, I don't believe that, but uh, here's what I think we should read it as, you know? And then he just basically puts a framework over it and he goes, now enjoy, you know? And yeah. um, kind of, you know, you realize, okay, well, at one level, it's it's almost like he's putting his head into the ground and just... And just um, not wanting to hear, but I don't think that's happening. He's he's he understands what they believe, but he's just going. Listen, you know, if a greater maturity often doesn't leave you to jettison these things, it leads you to be able to interpret them in, in a way that yeah. can be deeply deeply edifying. So, yeah, um, I think it's the fundamentalist instinct to just reject it wholesale. Yeah, that you can't take the good out of it. Yeah. can't see the good in it. Yeah, you just oh, there's a little bit of bad. The whole thing is ruined. You know, and on that and that's, point, that's, yeah. That, yeah, there's just no grace in that view. That's expecting perfectionism, isn't it? Yes, brilliant. Uh, yeah, I couldn't agree more. And the thing is, especially for reformed folk, because you know w what we do is we we say uh, wherever there's good truth, beauty, it's God's goodness, God's truth, God's beauty. So we read the pagans, Amen. we read the whatever. You know, we we get it. We see what uh, what's there. And again, I'm thinking of Kelvin now. But you know, sometimes we will do that for secular sort of uh, ideas, and yet not even show the same grace to the old, to other parts of the Christian church, which is just frightening. So let us not be found in that error, brothers. Amen. Yeah. All right, good. Let's, uh, where are we going? Uh, seven. No. Number six. Six. That's uh, me. Okay. All right. Six? Yeah. 
Let no one then suppose that baptism merely bestows remission of sins together, perhaps with adoption, like John's baptism, which conferred only remission of sins. We know full well that as it purges our sins and ministers to us the gift of the Holy Spirit, so also it is the antitype of Christ's sufferings. This is why Paul said, Don't you know that all we who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into his death, Romans 6.3. These words he spoke to some who were disposed to think that baptism ministers to us the remission of sins and adoption, but not also the fellowship of Christ's true sufferings by representation. All right, mm. that's it. Now, again, much of what we were saying there a second ago, it seems like there was a particular thing going on, though, that he's worried about that is no longer even on yeah, our radar. He's just trying to deepen it and broaden it. Don't Let's not forget the Holy Spirit. Let's also not forget a participation in Christ's sufferings. Yeah, um, He's just deepening it, broadening it. Let's yeah. not just make it a bare cleansing ceremony. Right, right. Which, you know, at that level, if we're using the... Synecdoche kind of framework again. I mean, amen, right? We're going, yeah, it's deep, it's rich. There's more to it than just one thing. It's almost like it folds right into the active and passive uh, substitution debate going on now, in that, you know, many, and I think of the Norman Shepherd thing tying this into our usual discussions in the Kleinian framework, you know, the Norman Shepherd denial of, of active. Uh, yes. substitutionary atonement, um, wanting and, and really just the trend in reformed theology to go, all right, well, you know, it kind of gets you gets you a clean, a fresh slate, but you kind of have to via covenantal faithfulness or neo nominism or whatever it is, uh, you have to, you know, make your way into that final glorification or, you know, uh, and, and you know, amen to to what he's saying in that, insofar as baptism represents our regeneration and what Christ has done for us. This is not only giving us a fresh slate. It's uh, we're dead. We're alive. We're adopted. We're fully yeah. I, I like the way he. I like the way he links adoption with baptism because he's he must have. This is my beloved son in whom yeah. I'm well pleased. Right. The declaration of Christ's sonship. You know right. the re- the revealing of his sonship at his baptism. Yeah. Um, quite profound. Totally. All right. Number seven. Number seven. In order, therefore, that we might learn. That whatsoever things Christ endured for us and for our salvation, he suffered them in reality and not in appearance. And that we also are made partakers of his sufferings. Paul cried with all exactness of truth. For if we have been planted together with the likeness of his death, we shall be also with the likeness of his resurrection. Well, has he said planted together. For since the true vine was planted in this place, We also, by partaking in the baptism of death, have been planted together with him. And fix thy mind with much attention on the words of the apostle. He said not, for if we have been planted together with his death, but with the likeness of his death. For in Christ's case, there was death in reality, for his soul was really separated from his body. And real burial for his holy body was wrapped in pure linen, and everything happened really to him. But in your case... There was only a likeness of death and sufferings. Whereas of salvation, <laughs> there was not a likeness, but a reality. So there you see him just really mm. emphasizing the symbolic aspect, <clears throat> yet behind the symbolic, something very real going on. Yeah, and it ties into that previous um, chapter as well. And I really like this, uh, where he's going, listen, Christ went through this whole thing. He literally yeah. died. He had nails pierce him. 
And just by representing that, you know, you're saved. Just in other words, you know, free yeah. grace. In other words, you know, <laughs> basically you're getting yeah. you're getting everything Christ actually suffered for uh, in, in exactly. this representation, which is awesome. You know, all the payment is on his side. All the benefit is on your side. Yeah. Great exchange. And, um, you know, there it is at some level. Um, good. All right. Chapter eight. How many have we got you? Last one. All right. This is the last one. Yeah. All right. Here we go. Now that you have been taught these things. I beg you to remember them so that unworthy as I am, I may save you. Now I love you because you always remember me and hold fast to the traditions which I delivered to you. And he's thinking about 1 Corinthians 11 to 11 <laughs> 2 there. Um, and God, who has brought you from death to life, is able to grant you to walk in newness of life because his is the glory and power now and forever. Amen. End of lecture. End of lecture. The mystagogical yeah. lecture. Mystagogical, man. Yeah, and the next one's on confirmation. Or uh, my translation says chrism. Yeah. Confirmation. Yeah. There's another subject. And then there's the body and the blood. Right. That's a super interesting one. I read through that one as well. And then on the sacred liturgy and communion, I didn't get that far. Okay. Yeah. Super interesting. Yeah. Well, I mean, and this is uh, this is all. I think this is his only work, right? This uh, these lectures, as we said in the beginning. At least it's his most famous one. I'm not sure if it's his only one. So it seems like probably worth reading through the whole thing. Um, and then next up, we've got Basil of Caesarea, uh, mm. the rules, the long rules, <laughs> <laughs> as it's called. So we're getting in there. We're three five eight um ad at that point and uh so we're making some some headway um all prior to augustine right we haven't done augustine yet he's no not yet he's the big one he's the big one he's the mountain peak augustine yeah he's about um ah only about two away so we're nearly there cool right. so anyways there we go uh some more on the the journey should we play a little bit of uh let's play a definitely little... i need that now yeah, let's uh I need to feel it. All right, you ready? <laughs> Many have asked what we've been playing on the podcast. No, I'm just kidding. No <laughs> one has asked. <laughs> no one listens to the podcast. But, but, hey. but had someone asked, this is what I would have told them. That is um, the new album out called The Lost Voices of the Hagia Sophia. You need to check it out because Ooh. basically it's uh, we weren't able to tell what this sounded like until they were able to pop a balloon in the Hagia Sophia. And... Um, you know, get its sound effects and create filters because they used to design chants around the sound reverberations. So now they're able to do that again and, and actually sing the, th the whole thing the way it's meant to be sung. And honestly, it's just majestic. It's like, I mean, it's my sermon prep music. So I'll put that on <laughs> whenever I get any background noises killing me. I just put some noise canceling headphones and the Hagia Sophia in the background. And uh, it's just, it's otherworldly, man. It's really good. It just does steer your thoughts in a heavenly direction. You just can't help it. So there we go. Excellent. There's a free little plug for the scene we're talking about early church. You know, we've got to be, uh, we've got to be plugging that. But hey, back to the real world and onto the contemporary stuff. Uh, you ready for the real play out, bro? Mm, let's do it.